Well, good morning and welcome again uh, to Christ Community Chapel. My name is Mike, part of the pastoral team here. Great to be with you. Uh, if you're tuning in online, welcome. If you're here in person, welcome to you as well. We are wrapping up a series called Agents of Change. Agents of Change. We're looking at the ways and the things that God uses to change us. Looked at prayer, the gospel, worship, and now today we close our series looking at scripture, how the Bible is an agent of change in our life. And we're going to get to that in just a moment. Before we do, next month, next series is starting next week. It's already June, coming soon. And Pastor Joe wanted to invite you to it uh, via video, so take a look at uh, this video. Easter. Uh, no surprise there. Second highest attended Sunday of the year, Mother's Day. Why is that? What would it be like if it was Father's Day? If the second highest attended Sunday of the year was Father's Day, where every dad turns to his family and says, hey everybody, let's go to church today. At least that's where I'm going. You guys just follow me. Do what I'm doing. It seems like a church has always been a place where women feel more comfortable than men. This year, we have a theme called Transform 2018, where we're all about change. And we want to change that. June is going to be Man Month here at CCC. That's right, Man Month. We want to cast a vision for what a man could be, should be, what the world needs men to be. What would CCC be like if every man committed himself to being all that God has called him to be? Well, listen, I want to invite you to come. Men, this is my challenge to you. Come the four weeks of June. Women, you come too. You'll want to hear this. And who knows, if Christ Community Chapel, if Father's Day ever catches up to Mother's Day, it might be the very best thing that has come out of Transformed 2018. So thanks. See you next week. All right, there you have it. June is Man Month. Father's Day hopefully will be a great weekend. Uh, women, if you have things that you want us to tell to the men of this church, you can email them in, please. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> Speaking of uh, Father's Day, let's go back a little bit to Mother's Day. How was that for your family? How did Mother's Day go? Anybody botch Mother's Day this year or almost botch Mother's Day? That was just me. Okay, well, that's good. I realized the day before Mother's Day that a gift I had for my wife, it just wasn't going to cut it. And the reason I realized that is I saw the kind of gift that she was making for her mom and for my mom. So my wife is Christina. We have a, a one-and-a-half-year-old one son, Brayden, and somehow she found a way to turn his handprint into a keychain. So somehow she put it in the oven, and then it like shrunk to the right size, and then I don't know how she figured it out, but now my mom and her mom have their grandson's handprint as a keychain. How personal, how thoughtful, how unique. What a great Mother's Day gift. I bought my wife an Amazon Echo Dot. It wasn't even the full version. You get like the $90, that's a little bit nicer. I got the cheaper $40 version. So I knew I had a problem. So I called my brother Dave. He's older than me. He has four kids. He's a Mother's Day pro. 
And I explained to him the situation, and he said, yep, you are in trouble. And I said, yep, I know that already. Thank you, Dave. And my question to him was this, Dave, what do you got for me? And he gave me some great advice, and I'm going to pass it on to the men here so you can be spared next year's Mother's Day. But he said, find a place where there are no pictures, and there's your gift. Find a place where there are no pictures, and there you have your gift. So I thought about it, did some laps around our house, and I realized there were no pictures of Brayden on our fridge. My wife spends a lot of time in the kitchen. What a better, what a better place to be for a picture of her son than on the refrigerator door. So I did Shutterfly, got some magnets. Now Brayden is on our fridge, and Mother's Day was saved 2018, I think. She knows the story, by the way, so it's all good. Um, imagine you're like me. Imagine you have situations, problems that you run into, and you go to a friend, a coworker, a family member, and the question is this, what do you got for me? It could be your yard, it could be uh, redecorating your kitchen, it could be a gift, whatever it is, we have these problems and we go and say, hey, what do you got for me? We're going to meet a pastor today, a young pastor in scripture named Timothy, who had a long list of problems. And not related to gifts, not related to yards, not related to redecorating a kitchen. But there were people in and around his church that were just struggling. People that were facing significant moral and spiritual issues. And he's asking the same question, God, what do you have for me? We get a look at his list in 2 Timothy chapter 3. I invite you to learn there, or turn there now. 2 Timothy 3, I'm going to read the first few verses. It'll be on your screen as well. But it says, here's the list of Timothy's problems. For people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, with Control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having the appearance of godliness, but denying its power. It's quite the list. What would CCC's list look like? What would your family's list look like? Would it be similar or different? What would your list, what would my list look like? And the question that we ask as we look at our lists is simply this, God, what do you got for me? It's a question we ask with a little bit of urgency, a little bit of disappointment, and a little bit of frustration. Because you know what? <laughs> We're a little bit tired of being the same people with the same problems, the same mess, and the same lists. The answer that Timothy gets is the same answer that we have today, a few verses later in 2 Timothy 4. It says, I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing in his kingdom, preach the word. 
Be ready in season and out of season. Reproof, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. Preach the word. That's the answer that Paul gives to Timothy. That's the answer that we have. The Bible is the agent of change. It seems a little bit simplistic. Especially when we think about the mess of the problems that we have. It seems a little bit predictable. So I preach and poof. Think about the last few sermons that you've heard, the last few series maybe that you've been under. Have you experienced that? So why does Paul, why does Paul tell Timothy, the answer, the hope, the key is for you to preach the word? If we go back just a few verses, we'll see it in at the end of chapter 3. He gives them this command in the beginning of chapter 4, preach the word, but this command is rooted in these verses just prior. And he says this, all scripture, all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. All scripture, from Genesis to Revelation, is God-breathed. It is profitable, it is useful, it is beneficial for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. We're beginning to see Paul's answer on why preach the word. And it doesn't have to do with Timothy as a preacher. He doesn't give Timothy that call, that command, because he thinks Timothy is this dynamic communicator. He doesn't think that if Timothy has enough charisma, enough jokes, or enough clarity, that that will change. It has nothing to do with the preacher, but what he is preaching. And when you preach scripture, you preach the word, watch change, and watch transformation happen. And he gives three reasons why. The first, there is power in the word to change. There is power in the word to change. The second, there is power in the word to make us want to change. And third, there is power in the word to show us how to change. There is power to make us want to change and to show us how to change. First, the scripture has the power to change us. Look with me at the very beginning of 16a. It says, all scripture is breathed out by God. If we're going to understand the Bible as an agent of change, we have to understand the nature of what the Bible is. And the Bible is breathed out by God. I imagine you have a lot of great books that you enjoy reading, a lot of great Christian authors or books that you um, read over time that's impacted you. Maybe you enjoy C.S. Lewis, maybe Tim Keller, maybe Henry Nouwen, maybe Beth Moore. Uh, we probably have authors that shape us in some way and these books that are, that are classics, right? Like C.S. Lewis, Mere Christianity, Tim Keller's The Reason for God, these books that have a profound influence on who we are. But what makes the Bible different from those books? What makes reading the Bible different than reading those books? And the answer is right here. The Bible is the only book that has the breath of God in it. And that means a number of things. It means that the Bible is 
authored by God. It means that the Bible is inspired by God, that he inspired people like Paul to write letters like 2 Timothy. It means that the Bible is completely true and trustworthy in all that it says. And the part that we're going to focus on this morning is that it means the Bible has a different kind of power, different kind of energy, so to speak, than any other book, podcast, blog that we might engage with. I was looking through scripture at other points where we see God breathing. And let me share these with you. Genesis 2 verse 7 says, God breathed initial life into Adam. Psalm 33, 6, God breathed heaven and earth into existence. John 20, 22, Jesus breathed new life into his disciples and we're beginning to see a pattern that God breathes and there is life and there is change and there is transformation that happens. At the very end of C.S. Lewis's The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, there's this great scene. You've probably read it. And Aslan comes back from the dead. He rises to new life. And he encounters loyal Narnians that have been frozen as statues by the wicked witch and queen. And he brings them back to life. And do you remember how he does it? He breathes on them. All scripture is breathed out by God, which means the book that we hold in our hands or look at on our screens is full of his life-giving, life-changing power. So why preach the word? There is no other book, there is no other podcast, there is no other author that contains the power that the Bible has. And if Timothy wants his church to change, and we want our church to change, then we will preach the word. Which also means the call for us to listen to the word. And not to get dragged off into other things, other ideas, other books, other authors, but to stay rooted and grounded primarily in the word of God. And then change will start to happen. The Bible has the power to change. And secondly, the power makes us, or the Bible makes us want to change. The Bible makes us want to change. Let me start here. What makes you want to change anything about you? What makes you want to change your hairstyle, your diet, your workout, your outfit, your workout plan, your golf swing? What makes you want to change you? And for me, it typically happens when I'm unhappy with something, there's some sort of discontent, there's something that I see in myself that I don't really like, and then I want to change. To put it another way, rarely do we change an outfit because we look too good. Rarely are you going to change your workout and your diet because you're just, I'm getting too strong, too big, and too fast. And rarely am I going to change my golf swing when I'm making just one too many birdies. Change happens with some sort of discontent or dislike with ourselves. We put that in the context of following Jesus. If you don't know Jesus, it's probably because you don't see a need for him. You don't see something in your life that you think is that wrong or that bad. And so why would you change to follow Jesus? Or if you think about yourself, if you're following Jesus, you probably won't want to change unless you see and dislike something in yourself. 
You won't want to change your stinginess unless you see it for what it is. You won't want to see and change your angry and bitterness unless you see it for what it is. And you won't want to change your racism unless you see it for what it is. The hard part I've realized, the difficult part for us, is that we have a much easier time seeing things outside of us than inside of us. Right, it's really easy to know if my workout isn't working, if my outfit just isn't matching. It's a whole other thing to see what's going on inside of us. When our heart is off and our heart is sick, when our faith is struggling and our life seems to be in disarray. And it's really no profound reason why that is. If I want to know what I look like physically, all I have to do is look into a mirror. This is my wife's vanity mirror. How many of you have a vanity mirror? What's funny is no one raises their hand really high when I say that. <laughs> How many of you used the vanity mirror this morning? How many of you should have used the vanity mirror this morning? <laughs> no, you guys look great. Really, you guys are better than every other service. All right, I mean that. What happens when I'm looking at this mirror? See, there's two sides of it. One is the normal mirror side. I kind of like that side. Right, I can look into it. It's not bad. I mean... Not great, but not bad. What if I flip it over? If you don't know, a vanity mirror carries this intense magnifying mirror. It's, it's the mirror of all mirrors. If I look into it, what am I going to see? Probably a nose hair that shouldn't be there. <laughs> a few more wrinkles than I might want to admit, even at my young age. <laughs> Teeth aren't so white. It's pretty easy to see and want to change when I look into a vanity mirror. But the question is, what do we have to look into? What do we have that tells us, or who do we have that tell us how we're doing on the inside? All right, how do we begin to know when our heart and our life and our faith are not so good? That they actually need changing. Who do we look to, and what do they tell us? Look with me at verse 16 again. It says, All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable and useful for teaching and for reproof. It's for reproof. Now that's a word we don't use very often, reproof. I began to look at how it's used in other parts of the New Testament. It has this idea of exposing something has this idea of seeing something in ourselves that we may not want to see and feeling something about ourselves that we may not want, want to feel. To be reproofed is to be exposed. What Paul is telling us, what Paul is telling Timothy, that if you want your people to change, you've got to look into the mirror. They've got to be reproofed. And just like the vanity mirror is for us physically, the Bible is in the same way to us spiritually. In the same way that I get a clear view of my face in that mirror, the Bible gives us a clear view of what's inside of us. So let me ask you a question. If you could look into this vanity mirror, what would you see within you? And how would you feel? If you could see within you with as much clarity as you see 
on the outside of you, what would you find and what would it feel like? What kind of list would accumulate, do you think? Would it be more good than bad or more bad than good? Would it be a list that you are um, eager to share with others? Would you want to keep it to yourself? If I invited you on stage, would you want to share it publicly with the church? What would it feel like? If you could see within you every thought, every motivation, every deed. Would you feel happy or sad? Would you feel really good or not so good? Would it feel more like a wedding or would it feel like a funeral? What do you think you'd find? What do you think you'd feel? A few weeks back, I was cleaning uh, the bathroom at our house. That's one of my chores. And it started off okay. I started with the countertops and the mirror and the sink and, you know, it was pretty clean. And then I got to the toilet. And the top of the toilet was okay. But then I got, lifted up the seat of the toilet. Not so good. And then I went to the sides of the toilet, like closer to the floor. I'm not sure if you've been down there in a while. Not, it's getting worse. From the toilet to the tub, the, the drain was clogged, so that wasn't good. Everything else looked okay until then I picked up my bar of soap. I picked up the shampoo and the conditioner from its corners and probably found the same thing that you find underneath your shampoo and your condition is black, crumbly, nasty stuff. And I wasn't done yet. I went from the tub to the floor. I shook out the rug. And I began sweeping and got all the corners. And before I knew it, what do you think was assembled in the, in the front middle part of our floor? A whole bunch of dirt, nails, hair, and only the Lord knows what else is in our bathrooms. And walking out of that bathroom, I was reproofed. I saw something about myself I didn't want to see, and I felt something about myself I didn't want to feel. As we engage the scripture, as we read and we listen to the Bible, we will begin to have that feeling. We will begin to see things that we didn't want to see about ourselves and feel things that we don't want to feel. For in scripture, the good news of scripture is always about God. The bad news is always about us. We aren't as clean as we think we are and we're more flawed than we want to admit. We see this play out. There's a story in the Old Testament of David and Bathsheba. And you've probably heard this story before. David is the king of Israel. He has everything he could ever want. But then he sees Bathsheba who's married to Uriah and he doesn't really care. He thinks she is beautiful and attractive and so he has an affair with her. She gets pregnant. He tries to cover it up. That doesn't work. So he sends Uriah on the front lines of the next battle, Uriah dies. He gets to marry Bathsheba and life carries on. It's a pretty awful story. The list for David isn't that great. From jealousy to selfishness to greed to lust to murder to adultery, the list goes on and on and on. And yet somehow we have Psalm 51. Psalm 51 is David's response to Bathsheba and Uriah's debacle. I'm going to read you a few verses. 
He says, have mercy on me, O God. Wash me thoroughly. Cleanse me from my sin. Purge me with hyssop. Wash me. Create in me a clean heart. Renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence. It's a beautiful psalm. It, create, it shows David's desire to change and to be transformed. And my question is, what led him to that spot? What led David to the spot to wanting to be changed and wanting to be transformed? Simply put, God put a vanity mirror in his face. God sends the prophet Nathan, the God-breathed, life-giving, life-changing word in 2 Samuel 12. And Nathan comes to David and he tells him the story of a rich man and a poor man. And the rich man has everything. And the poor man has one little lamb. The rich man has friends coming over for a long weekend to host, entertain, to feed. And he gets the food from where? He steals the one little lamb from the poor man. And David is hearing the story and he is outraged. He is angry. It says his anger is kindled against this rich man. Because how selfish can you be? How can you disregard someone like that? How can you treat them in that way? And then Nathan comes to David and says probably the most painful and the most poignant statement we hear in Scripture. You are that man. Everything you see in the rich man, David, is true of you. You have his selfishness, you have his greed, you have his disregard for others. It is true of you too. You see, David had a really hard time seeing that until the mirror. And then he saw, and you have to imagine, what was he thinking, what was he feeling in that moment? And that led us to Psalm 51. Do you have more David moments or Nathan moments? Do you have more David moments or Nathan moments? Do you have more moments where you're looking at somebody else and your anger is just fueled and kindled and you can't believe how idiotic, how stupid, how selfish, how greedy, how prideful, how self-righteous they can be? Or do you have more David moments? As you preach and as you read, as you listen to scripture, you realize, you know what? I am that man. I am that woman. And we are those people. If we're going to change in 2018, if this is going to be a year of transformation, my friends, we're going to have to have a lot more David moments than Nathan's. We're going to have to look into the mirror and let Scripture show us our flaws, show us the black, crumbly stuff in the corners of our tub. When we see it and we don't like it, that's where change starts. So why preach the word? The Bible is living and active and has power to change you. The Bible will give you a desire to change. And third and final, the Bible will show you how to change. It will show you how to change. There are two ways the Bible does that. The first, it gives us a picture. And the second, it gives us a person. The first is a picture. Look with me at the end of our 
uh, end of verse 16 here. It says, all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, and then it finishes with for correction and for training in righteousness. For correction and for training in righteousness. Right? Think about a good coach, a good teacher, a good instructor that you may have. They don't simply point out what you're doing wrong, but then they show you a different way. In the very same way, that's where the Bible comes. It doesn't just expose what is wrong with us and leave us there, but it says there is a new way. There is a new list that you can write. David, you don't have to stay as this adulterous husband and this dishonorable king. There's a new list for you to write. The church in Ephesus that Timothy was pastoring, you don't have to stay in your love of self and your love of money. You don't have to stay in your abuse. You don't have to stay in your arrogance and your pride. There's a new list for you. For the Bible exposes our stinginess, yes, but then it points us to what generosity looks like. Helps us to see our pride for what it is, but then it shows us what true humility looks like. It helps us to see the bitterness that we have and shows us the way of forgiveness and love. The Bible just doesn't just expose what is wrong, but it shows us what is right. It gives us a picture of a new list. The question I have still, though, and the question you might still be wondering is, all right, how does that happen? I know what is wrong. I can see the picture of what is right, but how do I get there? How do we move from being racist to being loving? How do we move from being stingy to generous? How do we move from, you can fill in the blank. And this is where the Bible points us to a person. David is helpful for us again in Psalm 51. I'm going to reread just a few verses. It says, Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. Blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly. Purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me and I'll be whiter than snow. Create in me a clean heart and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence. Things that we don't hear David saying is, I can do better, I can fix this, I can make this right. I can clean myself. Things that we do hear David saying is, God, wash me. God, would you renew me? God, would you create a new heart within me? Would you cleanse me? And would you change me? For David knows two things. He knows that change does not happen in our own strength and our own desire. We cannot want it enough to change. Change happens through our weakness. Change happens when we come to God in our weakness and he gives us his grace, he gives us his mercy, and he empowers us with his presence. And the good news of scripture that in our time of weakness, in our time of need, we can come to the throne of a new and greater David, King Jesus. We can come to his throne and he will offer us grace and mercy and his presence. He says, I will take your list and I will make you a new one. Bring me your list. I don't care what's on it. 
I don't care how dirty or gross it may be. For I know the bad news about you. But do you know the good news about me? That my power and my presence and my grace and mercy are more life-changing and life-giving than you realize. The Bible gives us a picture and a person and that's how we change. So God, what do you got for me? What do you got for us in 2018? He's gonna keep pointing us back to this. His God-breathed, life-giving, life-changing scriptures. For in here we will see ourselves for who we really are. We'll get a good look in the mirror. But then our look will go from the mirror to the cross. And we realize that Jesus offers us himself and his grace and his mercy. That's how David changed. That's how the church that Timothy was pastoring changed. That's how the church in India is changing. And that's how we will change and be transformed in 2018. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. God, it is true. It is trustworthy. God, it is meant to show us who we really are. And so I pray that you would bring conviction, you would bring exposure to us individually and as a church. God, that then you would point us to your son and his power to wash and to clean us. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.